Section 5 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicola K. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3 by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 2, Part 3. 18. To make this intelligible, we must return to the distinction between flesh and spirit, to which we have already adverted, and which here becomes most apparent. The believer finds within himself two principles, the one filling him with delight in recognizing the divine goodness, and the other filling him with bitterness under a sense of his fallen state, the one leading him to recline on the promise of the gospel, the other alarming him by the conviction of his iniquity, the one making him exult with the anticipation of life, the other making him tremble with the fear of death. This diversity is owing to imperfection of faith, since we are never so well in the course of the present life as to be entirely cured of the disease of distrust, and completely replenished and engrossed by faith. Hence those conflicts, the distrust cleaving to the remains of the flesh rising up to assail the faith enlisting in our hearts. But if in the believer's mind certainty is mingled with doubt, must we not always be carried back to the conclusion that faith consists not of a sure and clear, but only of an obscure and confused understanding of the divine will in regard to us? By no means. Though we are distracted by various thoughts, it does not follow that we are immediately divested of faith. Though we are agitated and carried to and fro by distrust, we are not immediately plunged into the abyss. Though we are shaken, we are not therefore driven from our place. The invariable issue of the contest is that faith in the long run surmounts the difficulties by which it was beset and seemed to be endangered. 19. The whole, then, comes to this. As soon as the minutest particle of faith is instilled into our minds, we begin to behold the face of God, placid, serene, and propitious, far off indeed, but still so distinctly as to ensure us that there is no delusion in it. In proportion to the progress we afterwards make, and the progress ought to be uninterrupted, we obtain a nearer and surer view the very continuance making it more familiar to us. Thus we see that a mind illumined with the knowledge of God is at first involved in much ignorance. Ignorance, however, which is gradually removed. Still this partial ignorance or obscure discernment does not prevent that clear knowledge of the divine favor which holds the first and principal part in faith. For as one shut up in a prison where from a narrow opening he receives the rays of the sun indirectly and in a manner divided, though deprived of a full view of the sun, has no doubt of the source from which the light comes and is benefited by it. So believers, while bound with the fetters of an earthly body, though surrounded on all sides with much obscurity, are so far illumined by any slender light which beams upon them and displays the divine mercy as to feel secure. 20. The Apostle elegantly adverts to both in different passages, 
when he says, We know in part, and we prophesy in part, and now we see through a glass darkly, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 9 and 12, he intimates how very minute a portion of divine wisdom is given to us in the present life. For although those expressions do not simply indicate that faith is imperfect, so long as we groan under a height of flesh, but that the necessity of being constantly engaged in learning is owing to our imperfection, he at the same time reminds us that a subject which is of boundless extent cannot be comprehended by our feeble and narrow capacities. This Paul affirms of the whole church, each individual being retarded and impeded by his own ignorance from making so near an approach as were to be wished but that the foretaste which we obtain from any minute portion of faith is certain, and by no means fallacious, he elsewhere shows when he affirms that we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 in such degrees of ignorance much doubt and trembling is necessarily implied, especially seeing that our heart is by its own natural bias prone to unbelief. To this we must add the temptations which, various in kind and infinite in number, are ever and anon violently assailing us. In particular, conscience itself, burdened with an incumbent load of sins, at one time complains and groans, at another accuses itself, at one time murmurs in secret, at another openly rebels. Therefore, whether adverse circumstances betoken the wrath of God, or conscience finds the subject and matter within itself, unbelief thence draws weapons and engines to put faith to flight, the aim of all its efforts being to make us think that God is adverse and hostile to us, and thus, instead of hoping for any assistance from Him, to make us dread him as a deadly foe. 21. To withstand these assaults, faith arms and fortifies itself with the word of God, when the temptation suggested is that God is an enemy because he afflicts. Faith replies that while he afflicts, he is merciful, his chastening proceeding more from love than anger. To the thought that God is the avenger of wickedness, it opposes the pardon ready to be bestowed on all offenses whenever the sinner retakes himself to the divine mercy. Thus the pious mind, how much soever it may be agitated and torn, at length rises superior to all difficulties, and allows not its confidence in the divine mercy to be destroyed. Nay, rather the disputes which exercise and disturb it tend to establish this confidence. A proof of this is that the saints, when the hand of God lies heaviest upon them, still lodge their complaints with him, and continue to invoke him, when to all appearance he is least disposed to hear. But of what use were it to lament before him if they had no hope of solace? They never would invoke him did they not believe that he is ready to assist them. Thus the disciples, while reprimanded by their master for the weakness of their faith, in crying out that they were perishing, still implored his aid. Matthew chapter 8 verse 25 And he, in rebuking them for their want of faith, does not disown them or class them with unbelievers, but urges them to shake off the vice. 
Therefore, as we have already said, we again maintain that faith remaining fixed in the believer's breast can never be eradicated from it. However it may seem shaken and bent in this direction or in that, its flame is never so completely quenched as not at least to lurk under the embers. In this way, it appears that the word which is an incorruptible seed produces fruit similar to itself. Its germ never withers away utterly and perishes. The saints cannot have a stronger ground for despair than to feel that, according to present appearances, the hand of God is armed for their destruction. And yet Job thus declares the strength of his confidence. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. The truth is that unbelief reigns not in the hearts of believers, but only assails them from without, does not wound them mortally with its darts, but annoys them or, at the utmost, gives them a wound which can be healed. Faith, as Paul declares in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, is our shield which, receiving these darts, either wards them off entirely, or at least breaks their force, and prevents them from reaching the vitals. Hence, when faith is shaken, it is just as when, by the violent blow of a javelin, a soldier standing firm is forced to step back and yield a little, and again, when faith is wounded, it is as if the shield were pierced, but not perforated by the blow. The pious mind will always rise and be able to say with David, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Psalm chapter 23 verse 4 Doubtless it is a terrific thing to walk in the darkness of death, and it is impossible for believers, however great their strength may be, not to shudder at it. But since the prevailing thought is that God is present and providing for their safety, the feeling of security overcomes that of fear. As Augustine says, Whatever be the engines which the devil erects against us, as he cannot gain the heart where faith dwells, he is cast out. Thus, if we may judge by the event, not only do believers come off safe from every contest so as to be ready after a short repose to descend again into the arena, but the saying of John in his epistle is fulfilled. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. 1 John chapter 5 verse 4 It is not said that it will be victorious in a single fight or a few or some one assault, but that it will be victorious over the whole world, though it should be a thousand times assailed. 22. There is another species of fear and trembling which, so far from impairing the security of faith, tends rather to establish it. Namely, when believers, reflecting that the examples of the divine vengeance on the ungodly are a kind of beacon's warning to them, not to provoke the wrath of God by similar wickedness, keep anxious watch, or, taking a view of their own inherent wretchedness, learn their entire dependence on God, without whom they feel themselves to be fleeting and evanescent as the wind. For when the apostle sets before the Corinthians the scourges which the Lord in ancient times inflicted on the people of Israel, that they might be afraid of subjecting themselves to similar calamities, he does not in any degree destroy the ground of their confidence. He only shakes off their carnal torpor which suppresses faith, but does not strengthen it. Nor when he takes occasion from the case of the Israelites to exhort, let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. He does not bid us waver, as if we had no security for our steadfastness. He only removes arrogance and rash confidence in our strength, telling the Gentiles not to presume because the Jews had been cast off, and they had been admitted to their place. Romans chapter 11, verse 20. In that passage, indeed, he is not addressing believers only, but also comprehends hypocrites, who gloried merely in external appearance. Nor is he addressing individuals, but contrasting the Jews and Gentiles, he first shows that the rejection of the former was a just punishment of their ingratitude and unbelief, and then exhorts the latter to beware, lest pride and presumption deprive them of the grace of adoption which had lately been transferred to them. For as in that rejection of the Jews there still remained some who were not excluded from the covenant of adoptions, so there might be some among the Gentiles who, possessing no true faith, were only puffed up with vain carnal confidence, and so abused the goodness of God to their own destruction. But though you should hold that the words were addressed to elect believers, no inconsistency will follow. It is one thing in order to prevent believers from indulging vain confidence to repress the temerity which from the remains of the flesh sometimes gains upon them, and it is another to strike terror into their consciences and prevent them from feeling secure in the mercy of God. 23. Then, when he bids us work out our salvation with fear and trembling, all he requires is that we accustom ourselves to think very meanly of our own strength, and confide in the strength of the Lord. For nothing stimulates us so strongly to place all our confidence and assurance on the Lord as self-diffidence, and the anxiety produced by a consciousness of our calamitous condition. In this sense are we to understand the words of the psalmist, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temples. Psalm chapter 5 verse 7 Here he appropriately unites confident faith, leaning on the divine mercy with religious fear, which of necessity we must feel whenever coming into the presence of the divine majesty, we are made aware by its splendor of the extent of our own impurity. Truly also does Solomon declare, Happy is the man that feareth alway, but he that hardeneth his heart falleth into mischief. Proverbs 28, 14 The fear he speaks of is that which renders us more cautious, not that which produces despondency, the fear which is felt when the mind confounded in itself resumes its equanimity in God, downcast in itself takes courage in God, distrusting itself breathes confidence in God. Hence there is nothing inconsistent in believers being afraid, and at the same time possessing secure consolation as they alternately behold their own vanity and direct their thoughts to the truth of God. How, it will be asked, can fear and faith dwell in the same mind? Just in the same way as sluggishness and anxiety can so dwell. The ungodly court a state of lethargy that the fear of God may not annoy them, and yet the judgment of God so urges that they cannot gain their desire. In the same way God can train his people to humility and curb them by the bridle of modesty, while yet fighting bravely. And it is plain from the context 
that this was the apostle's meaning, since he states, as the ground of fear and trembling, that it is God who worketh in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. In the same sense must we understand the words of the prophet, The children of Israel shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Hosea 3, verse 5. For not only does piety beget reverence to God, but the sweet attractiveness of grace inspires a man, though desponding of himself, at once with fear and admiration, making him feel his dependence on God, and submit humbly to his power. 24. Here, however, we give no countenance to that most pestilential philosophy which some semi-papists are at present beginning to broach in corners. Unable to defend the gross doubt inculcated by the schoolmen, they have recourse to another fiction, that they may compound a mixture of faith and unbelief. They admit that whenever we look to Christ we are furnished with full ground for hope. But as we are ever unworthy of all the blessings which are offered us in Christ, they will have us to fluctuate and hesitate in the view of our unworthiness. In short, they give conscience a position between hope and fear, making it alternate by successive turns to the one and the other. Hope and fear again they place in complete contrast, the one falling as the other rises, and rising as the other falls. Thus Satan, finding the devices by which he was wont to destroy the certainty of faith, too manifest to be now of any avail, is endeavoring by indirect methods to undermine it. But what kind of confidence is that which is ever and anon supplanted by despair? They tell you, if you look to Christ, salvation is certain. If you return to yourself, damnation is certain. Therefore your mind must be alternately ruled by diffidence and hope as if we were to imagine Christ standing at a distance, and not rather dwelling in us. We expect salvation from him, not because he stands aloof from us, but because in grafting us into his body, he not only makes us partakers of all his benefits, but also of himself. Therefore, I thus retort the argument, if you look to yourself, damnation is certain. But since Christ has been communicated to you with all his benefits, so that all which is his is made yours, you become a member of him, and hence one with him. His righteousness covers your sins. His salvation extinguishes your condemnation. He interposes with his worthiness, and so prevents your unworthiness from coming into the view of God. Thus it truly is. It will never do to separate Christ from us, nor us from him. But we must with both hands keep firm hold of that alliance by which he has riveted us to himself. This the apostle teaches us. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Romans chapter 8 verse 10. According to the frivolous trifling of these objectors, he ought to have said, Christ indeed has life in himself, but you, as you are sinners, remain liable to death and condemnation. Very different is his language. He tells us that the condemnation which we of ourselves deserve is annihilated by the salvation of Christ, and to confirm this he employs the argument to which I have referred, that is, that Christ is not external to us, but dwells in us, and not only unites us to himself by an undivided bond of fellowship,
but by a wondrous communion brings us daily into closer connection until he becomes altogether one with us and yet i deny not as i lately said that faith occasionally suffers certain interruptions when by violent assault its weakness is made to bend in this direction or in that and its light is buried in the thick darkness of temptation still happen what may faith ceases not to long after god twenty five the same doctrine is taught by bernard when he treats professedly on this subject in his fifth homily on the dedication of the temple Quote, by the blessing of god sometimes meditating on the soul methinks i find in it as it were two contraries when i look at it as it is in itself and of itself the truest thing i can say of it is that it has been reduced to nothing what need is there to enumerate each of its miseries how burdened with sin obscured with darkness ensnared by allurements teeming with lusts ruled by passion filled with delusions ever prone to evil inclined to every vice lastly full of ignominy and confusion if all its righteousnesses when examined by the light of truth are but as filthy rags isaiah sixty four six what must we suppose its unrighteousness to be if therefore the light that is in thee be darkness how great is that darkness matthew chapter six verse twenty three what then man doubtless has been made subject to vanity man here been reduced to nothing man is nothing and yet how is he whom god exalts utterly nothing how is he nothing to whom a divine heart has been given let us breathe again brethren although we are nothing in our hearts perhaps something of us may lurk in the heart of god o father of mercies o father of the miserable how plantest thou thy heart in us where thy heart is there thy treasure also but how are we thy treasure if we are nothing all nations before thee are as nothing observe before thee not within thee such are they in the judgment of thy truth but not such in regard to thy affection thou callest the things which be not as though they were and they are not because thou callest them things that be not and yet they are because thou callest them for though they are not as to themselves yet they are with thee according to the declaration of paul not of works but of him that calleth End quote. romans chapter nine verse eleven he then goes on to say that the connection is wonderful in both points of view certainly things which are connected together do not mutually destroy each other this he explains more clearly in his conclusion in the following terms quote, if in both views we diligently consider what we are in the one view our nothingness in the other our greatness i presume our glorying will seem restrained but perhaps it is rather increased and confirmed because we glory not in ourselves but in the lord our thought is if he determined to save us we shall be delivered and here we begin again to breathe but ascending to a loftier height let us seek the city of god let us seek the temple let us seek our home let us seek our spouse 
I have not forgotten myself when with fear and reverence I say, we are in the heart of God. We are by his dignifying, not by our own dignity. End quote. 26. Moreover, the fear of the Lord, which is uniformly attributed to all the saints, and which in one passage is called the beginning of wisdom, in another wisdom itself, although it is one, proceeds from a twofold cause. God is entitled to the reverence of a father and a lord. Hence he who desires duly to worship him will study to act the part both of an obedient son and a faithful servant. The obedience paid to God as a father he by his prophet terms honor. The service performed to him as a master he terms fear. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? But while he thus distinguishes between the two, it is obvious that he at the same time confounds them. The fear of the Lord, therefore, may be defined reverence, mingled with honor and fear. It is not strange that the same mind can entertain both feelings, for he who considers with himself what kind of a father God is to us will see sufficient reason, even were there no hell, why the thought of offending him should seem more dreadful than any death. But so prone is our carnal nature to indulgence and sin, that in order to curb it in every way, we must also give place to the thought that all iniquity is abomination to the master under whom we live that those who by wicked lives provoke his anger will not escape his vengeance. 27. There is nothing repugnant to this in the observation of John. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear has torment. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. For he is speaking of the fear of unbelief, between which and the fear of believers there is a wide difference. The wicked do not fear God from any unwillingness to offend him, provided they could do so with impunity. But knowing that he is armed with power for vengeance, they tremble in dismay on hearing of his anger. And they thus dread his anger, because they think it is impending over them, and they every moment expect it to fall upon their heads. But believers, as has been said, dread the offense even more than the punishment. They are not alarmed by the fear of punishment, as if it were impending over them, but are rendered the more cautious of doing anything to provoke it. Thus the apostle addressing believers says, Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 6 and Colossians chapter 3 verse 6 he does not threaten that wrath will descend upon them, but he admonishes them while they think how the wrath of God is prepared for the wicked on account of the crimes which he had enumerated, not to run the risk of provoking it. It seldom happens that mere threatening have the effect of arousing the reprobate. Nay, becoming more callous and hardened when God thunders verbally from heaven, they obstinately persist in their rebellion. It is only when actually smitten by his hand that they are forced, whether they will or not, to fear. This fear the sacred writers term servile, and opposed to the free and voluntary fear which becomes sons. 
Some, by a subtle distinction, have introduced an intermediate species, holding that that forced and servile fear sometimes subdues the mind and leads spontaneously to proper fear. 28. The divine favor to which faith is said to have respect, we understand to include in it the possession of salvation and eternal life. For if, when God is propitious, no good thing can be wanting to us, we have ample security for our salvation when assured of his love. Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, says the prophet, and we shall be saved. Psalm chapter 80 verse 3 Hence the scriptures make the sum of our salvation to consist in the removal of all enmity and our admission into favor thus intimating that when God has reconciled all danger is past, and everything good will befall us. Wherefore, faith apprehending the love of God has the promise both of the present and the future life, and ample security for all blessings. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 The nature of this must be ascertained from the word. Faith does not promise us length of days, riches, and honors, the Lord not having been pleased that any of these should be appointed us, but is contented with the assurance that however poor we may be in regard to present comforts, God will never fail us. The chief security lies in the expectation of future life, which is placed beyond doubt by the word of God. Whatever be the miseries and calamities which await the children of God in this world, they cannot make his favor cease to be complete happiness. Hence, when we were desirous to express the sum of blessedness, we designated it by the favor of God, from which as their source all kinds of blessings flow. And we may observe throughout the scriptures that they refer us to the love of God, not only when they treat of our eternal salvation, but of any blessing whatever. For which reason David sings that the loving kindness of God experienced by the pious heart is sweeter and more to be desired than life itself. Psalm 63, verse 3. In short, if we have every earthly comfort to a wish, but are uncertain whether we have the love or the hatred of God, our felicity will be cursed, and therefore miserable. But if God lift on us the light of his fatherly countenance, our very miseries will be blessed, inasmuch as they will become helps to our salvation. Thus Paul, after bringing together all kinds of adversity, boasts that they cannot separate us from the love of God. And in his prayers, he uniformly begins with the grace of God as the source of all prosperity. In like manner, to all the terrors which assail us, David opposes merely the favor of God. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Psalm chapter 23 verse 4 And we feel that our minds always waver until contented with the grace of God, we in it seek peace, and feel thoroughly persuaded of what is said in the psalm, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Psalm 33, verse 12 29 Free promise we make the foundation of faith, because in it faith properly consists. For though it holds that God is always true, whether in ordering or forbidding, 
promising or threatening, though it obediently receive his commands, observe his prohibitions, and give heed to his threatening, yet it properly begins with promise, continues with it, and ends with it. It seeks life in God, life which is not found in commands or the denunciations of punishment, but in the promise of mercy. And this promise must be gratuitous, for a conditional promise which throws us back upon our works promises life only in so far as we find it existing in ourselves. Therefore, if we would not have faith to waver and tremble, we must support it with the promise of salvation, which is offered by the Lord spontaneously and freely from a regard to our misery rather than our worth. Hence the Apostle bears this testimony to the Gospel, that it is the word of faith. That's Romans chapter 10 verse 8. This he concedes not either to the precepts or the promises of the law, since there is nothing which can establish our faith, but that free embassy by which God reconciles the world to himself. Hence he often uses faith and the gospel as correlative terms, as when he says that the ministry of the gospel was committed to him for obedience to the faith, that it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth, and that therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Romans chapter 1 verse 5, verse 16 and 17. No wonder, for seeing that the gospel is the ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, there is no other sufficient evidence of the divine favor such as faith requires to know. Therefore, when we say that faith must rest on a free promise, we deny not that believers accept and embrace the word of God in all its parts, but we point to the promise of mercy as its special object. Believers, indeed, ought to recognize God as the judge and avenger of wickedness, and yet mercy is the object to which they properly look, since he is exhibited to their contemplation as good and ready to forgive, plenteous in mercy, slow to anger, good to all, and shedding his tender mercies over all his works. Psalm chapter 86 verse 5 Also chapter 103 verse 8 and chapter 145, verses 8 and 9. End of section 5. Recording by Nicola Kay.